Well, good morning, church. It's always a joy to be at Blue Ridge. And uh, um, can you all hear me? Oh, okay. So the kids can leave if they don't want to see me. <laughs> or <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what they're going to... Do they get something to eat as well or just play or... Uh, just a spiritual food. Great. <laughs> well, already, already, um, you know, you got an announcement. You guys getting a pizza on one? When are you getting that? Oh, it's been some few days. Okay, great. Well, it's a joy to be here. And um, uh, let's dive into the Word of God without any further ado. Uh, we'll be looking at Ezra chapter 8 today. And uh, it's a long chapter. A lot of names, a lot of words. That um, So please, I am... I apologize if you hear some weird pronunciations on that. Um, and, but we're going to read that um, and we would be uh, reading it and then, of course, trying to learn what, the, what, what God has for us in this. So I'm going to read that in front of you, Ezra chapter 8. The Word of God says, These are the family heads and those registered with them who came up with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. Of the descendants of Phinehas, Gershom, of the descendants of Etomar, Daniel, of the descendants of David, Hattush, of the descendants of Shechaniah, of the descendants of Perush, Zechariah, and with him were registered 150 men. Of the descendants of Pahat, Moab, Elohenai, son of Zariah, and with him 200 men. Of the descendants of Zato, Shechaniah, son of Jaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the descendants of Adon, Abed, son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the descendants of Elam, Jeshiah, son of Atahiah, and with him 70 men. Of the descendants of Shaphatiah, Zabadiah, son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the descendants of Joab, Obadiah, son of Jahel, and with him 218 men. Of the descendants of Benai, Shalomit, son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the descendants of Bebai, Zechariah, son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the descendants of Asgid, Johanan, son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the descendants of Adonikim, the last ones whose name were Eliphalet, Joel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men. Of the descendants of Begwai, Otai, Zakur, and with them 70 men. I assembled them at the canal that flows towards Ahawa, and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. So I summoned Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, El-Nathan, Jerib, El-Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders, and Joerib, and El-Nathan, who were men of learning. And I ordered them to go to Edo, the leader of Kesiphia. I told them what to say to Edo and his fellow Levites, the temple servants in Kesiphia, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us uh, Sherebiah, a capable man, from the descendants of Mahli, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's son and brothers, 18 in all, and Hashabiah, together with Jeshiah, from the descendants of Merari, and his brothers and nephews, 20 in all. They, all. they also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites. All were registered by name. There, by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. 
I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. But his greater anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests named Sharabiah, Heshabiah, and 10 of their brothers. And I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and the articles that the king, his advisors, his officials, and all Israel present, present there had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 1,000 derricks, and two fine articles of polished bronze and precious as gold. I said to them, you are well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are freewill offering to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then priests and Levites received the silver and gold and sacred articles that, he, that had been weighed out to take into the house of the, our God in Jerusalem. On the 12th day of the first month, we set out from Ahava Canal to go to the Jerusalem the hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. On the fourth day in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and the sacred articles in the hand of Merimoth, son of Uriah, the priest. Eliezer, son of Phinehas, was with him, and so, was, so were the Levites, Johazab, son of Jeshua, and Noediah, son of Binoi. Uh, everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at that time. Then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and as a sin of offering, 12 male goats. At the way, all the way, a burnt, all this way, a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal stirrups and the governors of Tras Euphrates. Who, who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I am humble in front of you. I don't know how to speak. I don't have words. But I want your spirit to guide me. And I want your spirit to speak to all, each one of us today. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Man, that was an exercise. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I am thrilled once again to speak about Ezra 8, and while I was reading about it, and I was like, should I really speak at this, or maybe I should ask Pastor Jack, to, can you please do that, I'll do something else. So I just uh, stopped, and I, I prayed about it, and I, and I prayed to God, God, I want you to speak to me. And the Lord spoke to me, what are we going to talk about today? You've, you've read up in the front that in the word, in the world. You know the story that, and, and I'm sure Pastor, Pastor Jack had already told you about that there are main two subdivisions of this book of Ezra. And, uh, and you would see the main idea is basically the, the exile, they're returning from the exile, they're going back, and they've had two main, main focuses to restore the temple, and they need the spiritual restoration after the sin that they had. And we're gonna, today we're going to learn about two, three things, two and three important points over here in the, um, in, in, the, in the context. And the first thing is that um, we're going to talk about the turbulent times. Is it going forward or backwards? Yeah, perfect. So the first thing we're going to look at, if you look at the passage, there were some men who accompanied him. 
a lot of names in the first 14 verses. If you read that, there are, and a few names that I would like you to, when you go home and you, you check that about Ethaliah, Shaphatiah, and Shalomit. These are the three names that I want to leave with you. And when I was reading about it, I was really blessed. And I was really thrilled about reading about these names. And I strongly believe that whenever it's just a genealogy, usually the genealogy verses we just skip, okay, first to 17 genealogy, okay, let's go to the, four, to the next one. But I just find it so amazing. What is the biggest blessing than if your name is is written in the word of God. And you know, for generations, for decades, for centuries, many centuries to come and many centuries in the past, these names had been read. And if your, if your name is written over there, so the first thing we're gonna talk about is that times were not good. So what was happening? If you read in chapter 10, people were sinful. The people did confess their sin. What was the biggest sin that they did? If you read chapter nine and 10, they were intermarrying with women who were, who, who were believing in pagan idolatry. They were not believing in the word of God. And when they were not believers and these men were intermarrying with, each, with, uh, with them, this was basically a problem with morality. And they were really mixing up with those people who they were not supposed to mix up with. Second thing, if you, if you look at that, they and God had really told them to stay away from idolatry. And we, and if you, if you read in the Second Corinthians chapter 6, 14 to 18 verse, you would read that. And the, and the word of God says that you do not be unequally yoked. And they were doing that. The other thing that, we, that they were doing is basically they were returning from the exile. If you remember, if you just have an idea, I don't know how many people over here have ever thought about or, or just imagine. You wake up in the morning and you are told to, that you're going to be taken away or you're going to be you know, you're going to be living in exile or you're going to be taken as slaves. The country that I come from, a lot of people, they face it. And we just talked about the brick kilns as well. A lot of people have to face that. You know, you're constantly in that vicious circle and you're not able to get out of that. And you are a slave to somebody. And if you're living in that exile, you, everything, probably before that, you had everything settled in your house. Maybe you had all the, uh, you have all the facilities, everything that you wanted in your life, you have that. But then... When, you, when that all is taken away from you, you're devastated. You are in a different state now. You're in a state of devastation. You're in a state of, of turmoil. You're in a state of uncertainty to a level where you don't even know what's going to happen to you next day. This is the situation they were coming at. If we look around in today's time, around us, wherever we are, we're living in the ends, end of the ends of times. We have uncertainty around us. We have a lot of situations. If you, if you just look at situations, a few, uh, a few moments ago, uh, Brother Alan and I were talking about something. And there are a lot of things that we would see that would reflect 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. Do not be unequally yoked. That's what the word of God says. If you look around, you'll see a lot of, a lot of problems, a lot of turmoil, a lot of emotional turmoil, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of situations where you would say, why is this even happening? Why is this happening? So the first thing that we learn over here is that times were not good at that time. The times are not even good today. This is a similarity that we can see with, with, with situation. Second thing, if you see, we call it a supplication. Ezra takes the people and he leads them in three things. First of all, they see that he has an acceptance for people for who they are. That does not mean, it's very important, that does not mean that he accepted their sin. 
sometimes accepting people by by accepting people we think that we can accept the the, the sin that they are that they're bringing them with them as well no he accepted the people for who they are but not for what they did and this is where he guides them this is where he leads them he accepted the fact that it was a collective sin it was a sin of the whole nation he accepted the challenge what was the challenge there were two challenges one restoration of the temple and second restorations of the souls he takes both the, both the both the challenges one was that temple where they all were gathering then the other there was the other temple that was sacred for the for for god this is a sign of a true leader if you see at Ezra's life he takes his people along for a tough call he leads them a true leader is not somebody who puts the people as a wall in front of him to face the challenges but a true leader is somebody who puts the people behind him and faces the challenges himself and then protects everybody else this is what a christian true leader is and over here we see that in the verse 21 he says if you if you could look in the one, verse 21 with me then by the hawa canal i proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our god and ask him for a safe journey for us and for our children he asks about humility he asks about victory he proclaims the victory he asks about surrendering and he gives whatever we is, is ours to our lord i remember that uh just recently at the hospital about two months ago in, in bakrishan hospital we had a biggest evaluation of our 67 years of history and it was pretty big i mean we had a manual about this big that we had to comply with a lot of things didn't somehow make sense to us but they still still we had to comply with it was a task huge task that we were supposed to do in about a month's time and starting from from the from the entrance gate to the wards to the operation theaters to the to the to the doctors to the um, i mean a lot of work had to be done and uh, when we were basically doing all this exercise and when i was reflecting the at the word of god at this this is what i remind this is what this verse reminded me of that we might humble ourselves before our god and ask him for a safe journey with all the possessions this is what god wants from us he wants us to lead through the exercise he wants us to guide our people through that exercise hey let's go let's do it hey do it the two different things if we say we can do it we can do it but if we say you do it sometimes it's difficult and this is where we see a very nice strategic planning in Ezra's life over here he feels that god's people need to serve at his house he finds a he finds a need he finds it out over here if you if you read in verse 15 to 20 you will see that he figures out that um they required levites and he found no levites there so i summoned eliezer ariel shemaya elnathan jerob elnathan nathan zechariah and meshulam who were leaders and jerob and elnathan who were men of learning he finds out some people he sends them to edo and he tries to get some people to serve at the at the house of the lord sometimes we don't recognize the need especially for us as leaders sometimes it's um it's kind of challenging to say hey i don't need i don't know how to do it but hey i need some people i need your help recognition of the need is the first thing which is very very important and uh over here he finds he finds out that the levites were not there why are the levites 
They were not only there to serve the, serve the temple of, the God, of God, but also to build it. They were also judges and they also served as teachers as well. He gives preference to what's needed the most for the Lord's work. Sometimes we try to uh, do a very, uh, something which is not quality work. The part, of the part of the world where I come from, sometimes we, people try to give, uh, you know, whenever they're, they're, they're giving in the church, I remember that many years ago, people used to give the, you know, that currency note which was torn, which was not in a good shape, that they knew that, you know, it's not going to be accepted by the shopkeeper or at the bank. They would just put that in the church. They would give, and I, when I was reading about it, when I was just, you know, uh, that video that you had up there, the first fruits, the best fruits, or the best of best fruits, this is what God's method is. You got to present the best of your bests to the Lord. And this is what he was trying to do over there. He recognized the need, that there was a need over there. And for that need, he, he needed the experts. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't try to put people who would just do the job. He needed people who would actually do the job the best way. According to what the Lord wanted them to do. He, pref he gives preference to what's needed for the the most of the Lord's work. He needed committed people. And if you read in verse 18, he says, by the good hand of our God on us. And if you, uh, he, in the verse he says, because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man, from the descendants of Mahalai, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's son and brothers, by the good hand of the Lord, hands of the Lord. It was God's work. It was God's work. It was God's people. It needed to be done the God's way as well. This is extremely important. We are chosen and if it's the Lord's work, it has to be done through the Lord's selection as well. Sometimes we try to select people according to our will, not according to what God wants us to do. When we are choosing somebody, sometimes we, I feel that if you, if you look in the Old Testament and also if you look at Moses' life, I sometimes... Uh, get amazed about his selection. Here's this guy who had killed somebody, who had fled the country, who had gone somewhere, and God says, no, 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 you're going back over there. You're getting these people out there. Who, me? Might have, he might have thought, okay, I just killed the person. Oh, you know God, I, I killed somebody over there? No, you're doing it. It is God's way, God's work, God's selection, and God's timing. This is what we need to remember in our lives as well. If you, if you read in Matthew 22, 14, it says that many are invited, but few are chosen. And that is special. We are the chosen ones. We are the selected ones. It's not because we are good. It's not because I am able. It's not because I'm qualified. But because we heard his calling. Because we paid attention to his calling. And when we paid attention to his calling, this is how God qualifies the called. He doesn't, sometimes he doesn't, he doesn't call the qualified. He, call, he calls to qualify you. That's what God does. And the another thing that he did was basically, it was a sign of wisdom that he had from, from the Lord that is needed to be worked on. And when we remember our past, it helps us grow in the Lord and serve him better. They, they remembered what, who they were. They remembered who they belonged to. They remembered that despite the sin that they did, who are they? They were Lord's people. They were God's selected people. They were God's chosen people. Yes, they had sinned. Yes, that had, that had put them away from the Lord. Yes, they had detracted. But there was a time for them to revive themselves. 
They could not actually restore the temple unless and until their, their inner temple was restored. And that is what demanded immediate attention. That's where, that's where the supplication comes in. The third thing, the gratitude was visible. You know, sometimes we are, um, we are loud and uh, asking, but quite shy in professing what God has done for us. You know, we, we are, okay, Lord, we need this. Lord, we need this. Lord, we need this. But our tears flow out when we are in need. Our tears don't flow out. God, I'm so thankful to you that you've done this for me. God, I'm not able enough. God, I, was, I could not do it. You have done it for me. This is you. I'm not the one doing it. You are the one who's done it. This is what is a visible gratitude. Our actions and words and our belongings should all be the source to glorify him and show what he has done for us. Sometimes our words just say that. Sometimes we feel that, okay, just giving the money is enough. No, our God has done the most amazing things for us. The word of God says, taste the glory of God. That's, that's, I, I just really like it. When you, when you, once you are used to tasting God's glory, that's where you actually see God's amazing work in your life being visible to others. If you just say, God, I'm so thankful that you've done this for me. Somebody, wait a second. You're thankful that God has done something for you, but it's not really visible that God has done something for you. If you, if you read over here in the context, in the verse 24 to, 20, to the 36 verse, if you see, you will see intricate details of what was given and what was gifted for the Lord's work. And actually, in the verse 34, you can see an excellent example of, of the accountability as well. The, the verse 34 says, everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at the time. For whom? Were these things for Ezra? No. For the Lord's house. These things were given for, for, for God. And if you read the verses, if you read in there, um, I would like to take you back to the uh, 26th verse, 26 and 27. You see a word talent. I was just inquisitive about how much is that worth today? What is a talent? And this is a talent. And, uh, and I was thinking about what is, what is it worth today? You know, in the Old Testament, this was a, this was a legitimate measure of weighing. It's a, it's, it was a weighing scale. And this talent basically weighed about um, 75 pounds or 35 kilograms. This is how, how heavy this was. And over here, and, and basically, if you, if you translate that in today's money, this, the silver was worth about $1.3 million dollars. The silver utensils were about $200,000, and the gold was about $3 million, and total weight was around 30 tons. This is how much they gave for, the God, for, for, for God's house. Now, just imagine, now read the 26, 27 again. If you read that, I'm going to read that in front of you. With that background, what this talent is, how heavy this was, and how worthy these things were, the word of God says in the 27, and I weighed out to them six 50 talents times 35 kilograms or 75 pounds of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 1,000 darics, and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold, 
This is what they brought. And in the 31st verse, what he says, he intricately, to the minute details that is still there in the word of God today, they not only weighed them, they actually kept record of everything. This is what a reflection of gratitude is. You just celebrated the, the first Sunday offering. I'm sure, and the video was just beautiful, absolutely beautiful video. I was looking at it, wait a second, this is, this is in context with what I'm going to teach today, what I'm going to preach today, you know. And the best of the bests of the bests, giving for the Lord. This is what the, this is what the Word of God talks about. You might, have, you might have something very little, the best out of that something very little. You might have in abundance the best out of that in abundance. If you apply that rule in our lives, this is the source of blessing. This is, this is the source of practically professing and saying it loudly, crying out loudly that profession of faith, that profession of joy and the gratitude that we have in our lives. If you, the sign of gratitude of what they recognized was basically not for A, it was for what God had done, but it was another thing was important that they recognized who they were. Sometimes if you just imagine, if you are going, I don't know if about this culture, but the culture that I come from. So when you go to a wedding, so sometimes you're expected to do or give what you're going to give at the wedding for who you are and not for who they are. For example, if you are, if you are maybe the head of a, uh, uh, maybe a mayor of a town or something, and if you're going to a wedding, you're not going to be just going there bringing a small gift for them. You're going you're gonna to bring them something that will reflect who you are. Here they were in the Eastern culture, this is big. They were making, they were building the temple, house of God. They needed to bring the best of the best of the best. And this was the, this was the measure. If you look at this measure and I'm like, how am I going to do that today? Can we do that today? Maybe not. But we have, and in the end we see in the verse 35, they, they offered the burnt offering. If you look at today, for us, what is our burnt offering? It's our hearts. For the, for the Israel at that time, they needed restoration of the soul. They needed the restoration of their hearts. They needed the restoration of the temple. Today, we don't need the restoration of the temple as such. According to the details that they had mentioned over there, we, we are probably, we are not required to bring gold and silver, and I'm pretty sure the church would be pretty happy if you want to bring it. And, but in the other side, if you bring yourself with a heart of gratitude. And that entire action, you've got a practical thing coming up when you clean up the church. Start from that. This was a national event for them. The whole nation was together. If you see, if you read the book of Ezra, there were about, there were about 50,000 people in different times that they, were, that they came back. Everybody was, in, was involved. Everybody was there. So this is a collective effort. And when you see the collective effort, this is how you can practically glorify God through that worship, through that gratitude that is in, in our lives. In the turbulent times, things have, had not changed at that time. Things are still not changed today. We might not have a lot of people taking us in exile. We might not have a lot of shooting around us. But trust me, around the world, there are many areas where people don't even know they're going to be alive tomorrow or not. 
We still have the times when supplication is needed, when leaders are needed, when leaders are needed to take probably the first arrow on them, maybe the first bullet them so that they can protect the people. We're still living in that times when that gratitude needs to be emphasized, that gratitude needs to be visible. God, we still are thankful. God, thank you so much that you have still protected us. Despite all this, in the midst of all this, thank you, God, that you still placed us strategically to glorify your name. This is what God wants from us. If we are being thankful visibly, if we have that gratitude that visible in our life, we should be thankful. But if not, maybe it's a time again to think about it. Maybe through the, through the book of Ezra, this is again, we, we're having a chance. And if you, if you read in one verse, I would like to read that in front of you. He says that um, he didn't want to tell the king that, you know, send us some security. Why? Because he wanted to face, he wanted to have God's security. The security they had because they, had, they, were, they were coming in the Lord's name. Hand of our God was on us and then he protected us from the enemies and bandits along the way. The hand of God is still on us. The hand of God was on us and the hand of God is still on us. Just before coming over here in the hospital, I shared with a, uh, I shared with a few people, we actually felt this. About four hours even before I was about to leave for the airport, I was still dealing with some matters at the hospital. Not because of something that we were expecting or we were anticipating, but for something that required immediate prayer, that required immediate attention, and that required us to get down on our knees and just pray about it. This is how God wants us to do. So let's think about it. Let's pray about it. Let's, let's bow down on our heads. Let's think about that. Where are we standing today?